You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Dabble Code Podcast. I am your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien, and today I'm doing a 10 questions episode. So every few weeks or so, I will put up a question box on my Instagram account and let people shoot over questions. They can be medical, they can be totally random, they can be about my life, their lives, whatever. And I just pick ones that I think will be interesting or funny or whatever that looks like that week. Um, can be pretty random. And then I just go for it. So today I'm going to answer 10 of those questions. And I love this first question. So I posted um, earlier this week, I posted a little graphic from, um, or reshared a story from Dr. Eleonora Toplinski, who actually was a guest on this podcast back in, I believe it was March. And she is a women's medical oncologist, meaning she does breast cancer and then the GYN cancers. Um, so she's obviously, you know, that is her wheelhouse. And she posted something about um, alcohol and clean alcohol and, and the risks of that. And I reposted it and a lot of people had questions and wanted to talk about it. So I'm glad that somebody submitted this. Um, Explain the difference between regular wine and quote, this is in quotes, clean wine. Are the risks different? So I just I love this question because I think it's such um, an interesting answer. And so I'm going to give a blanket answer first, and then I'm going to dive into it a little bit more. So the blanket answer is, is it better for you? No. Like from a cancer perspective, from a risk perspective, no, it's just not. Now, the kind of more nuanced answer and then kind of the wine, clean wine industry's answer is, you know, organic grapes are, they, they consider them healthier and therefore they produce like better skins and they say that they produce higher concentrations of all the antioxidants that are potentially good for you and things like red wine. Um, and you know, they might claim less sulfites, less sugar. There's a million kind of different things that, these quote unquote clean wines, or even, even they, they might need not even call themselves clean. Maybe they say they were just organic. And, and so there may be different benefits for different people, depending on why you're drinking that particular brand or type of wine. So let's say you are diabetic or you're doing keto or for whatever reason you are trying to cut down on your sugar. There certainly are wines that are formulated with less sugar and you know so you may want to drink it for that reason. So so in that way it may be beneficial for you, sure. In that one particular way. Now you may be, you know, a super big headache person and feel like you get headaches from the sulfites in red wine. What's interesting to me is sulfites, so I I used to think that that was an issue, sulfites in wine, but sulfites actually, that has been debunked because things that we are eating commonly all the time, like french fries, dried fruit, for example, those things have way more sulfites than a glass of wine, which I I think is super interesting. So I, I think what happens is 
these theories get put out there and we hear like, oh, it's the sulfites. And then we want to claim like, you know, name it and claim it. We want to claim that as the thing. So like, oh, okay, well, I do better if I drink, you know, French or Italian wines because their sulfites are more regulated. I mean, sure, that could be possible. Sure. Now back to the kind of original point of the question are the risks different with these cleaner wines, whether it's lower sugar, organic grapes, whatever that looks like? And I would say, you know, what risk are you talking about? Um, are the risks of cancer less? Um, no. And the reason for that is because the ethanol in alcohol is what's the problem, right? So when you drink even a clean glass of wine, it still has alcohol in it. Alcohol breaks down to acetaldehyde, I hope I did not butcher that, which is a known carcinogen. So carcinogen means it's a some substance that causes cancer. So different things can be carcinogens. Some medications, um, you know, can be carcinogenic in some ways. Foods can be carcinogenic in some ways. Um, smoking is carcinogenic. You know, the sun is carcinogenic, meaning that they can lead to cancer. Um, so the reason they lead to cancer is because those substances damage DNA and then they stop our cells from repairing the damage. And that's what allows cancer to grow, right? Is that change at that cellular level. So when we look at different cancers that have been, you know, well-established to be associated with alcohol, breast cancer, colon cancer, head and neck cancer, liver cancer, is there a cancer that hasn't been in some way associated with alcohol? I mean, gosh, maybe skin cancer. I'm trying to think of, you know, basically any internal organ skin cancer is, is going to have some, um, you know, risk with alcohol. So to, to me, and what I talked about when Dr. when I interviewed Dr. Toplinski, so there's surgical oncology, which are the folks that do the, the surgery and the cutting out of the cancer. And then there's medical oncologists who do the, the chemo part of the cancer. Um, and so I was telling her, you know, we're kind of talking about drinking COVID and how so many people, you know, started drinking so much more during COVID because we were at home and we were super bored and we were at our house incredibly stressed, um, or at least my, my husband was just with what he was doing for work. So we started drinking a whole lot more. And I told her, you know, it was really a wake up call that there are different categories of, of levels of drinking that are, you know, your, your different risk. And I realized, I'm actually Googling it. So I tell you guys, right. Um, I realized, you know, after not that long that me drinking two drinks a day was 14 drinks a week. And that put me in a heavy drinker category, which is like high risk for all of these things. And I was like, dang, it seems like everybody's having a couple glasses of wine a day. So you guys know I only bring you companies that I personally use and love. And I've been using the Buffalo sauce and the no soy teriyaki from Noble Maid recently. It is next level, clean, convenient, Everybody just loves it, our entire family. So their whole lineup of sauces and seasonings sits at the intersection of convenience and better for you. So this means you can feel good about getting your food to the table quicker without compromising taste and also knowing you're putting super high quality ingredients in front of your friends and family. 
I love the buffalo sauce. It comes in mild, medium, and hot. I can only handle the mild, maybe the medium. So super versatile. You can use it as a ready-to-go, a dressing, a dip, or even a marinade. And you can find them almost everywhere, seriously. Whole Foods, Sprouts, Kroger, Publix, also on Amazon. But if you go on their website, you can use code DABBLECO20 for 20% off on their website, which is thenewprimal.com. And that's DABBLECO20, 20% off on their website you know, it just seems like kind of this normal thing, but really two drinks a day for women specifically, I say that, um, for women specifically is considered heavy drinking. Um, and it, it's one drink or less a day, um, in women is considered moderate. So that was, a, you know, a time I think luckily that it was temporary, but that I really kind of took stock of how much I was drinking and, and why, and, um, really when we moved here, I kind of just, this is my own personal, I, we've really taken a left turn with this question also, by the way. So sorry about that, but this, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is. Um, <laughs> when we moved here, I just kind of changed what I was doing and I certainly am not, not drinking by any means, but I've quit drinking basically at my house for the most part. Um, and I'm kind of just saving it for, you know, if we go out to dinner or if we're out with friends wherever or there's something, you know, socially where I want to participate in drinking, then I know that I haven't had, you know, 10 to 12 drinks previously that week, uh, which really is is not good medically for a bajillion different reasons. But just to circle back around, is clean wine less risky from a cancer perspective? No, no, it is not. So, Love that question. Thank you so much. And y'all should go um, check out Dr. Toplinski. She's got tons of great information about women's cancers. So number two, when might I recommend a surgery versus Botox or filler? So this is kind of a nuanced question. I think that there are obvious times cosmetically when patients come to us and what they're complaining of, I can you know look at and say, you know, really there's, there's not an injectable procedure that's going to fix that. I think let's say eyelids is really a, a great example. So when some people are just, just naturally have a little bit more hooded eyelids and, but then as we age, we get, you know, more skin laxity and those eyelids can really start to sag and droop and actually obstruct your field of vision. And so, you know, yeah, can I put a couple units under the eyebrow and, and inject in a specific way, do a chemical brow lift? Yes, but is that really doing the best service to the patient knowing they're going to have to, first of all, it's not going to change that dramatically. Um, so it depends on the person's age, kind of their skin laxity, what do they have, where I might say, I can do what I can do, but like really to get the results that you want, you've got to go see um, a surgeon, whether it be, you know, facial plastics, oculoplastics or something like that. And then kind of the same, well, it's a little different for other, for other parts of the face for me personally. Um, there certainly are specific areas that just, there's just only so many things that we can inject and, you know, all this, you know, threads and Kybella and filler and Botox and Xeomin and gosh, we love it all. But at the end of the day, 
those procedures um, are not the definitive treatment. And so I think it just depends. So there are some people that just are never going to go under the knife. They're just not going to have surgery. And so for those people, the, the answer is completely different. You know, then it's like, okay, how can we best maintain this um, or get you the look that you're wanting, knowing that you're never going to have plastic surgery? Um, but then there are patients where I will say, okay, are you considering having, let's say, an, a neck lift or a facelift, um, just depending on their age? And, you know, if they say, yes, they're considering it, I will have that conversation with them really about the financial portion of it. Because, you know, if you get into an older person's face and by older, I mean, not, not that much older, like fifth can be like fifties, which is, you know, getting younger every day, but there becomes a certain kind of tipping point for me where I know this person's going to spend thousands of dollars. They're going to have to maintain that every year. Um, and if they're considering or willing to, undergo a surgery, then that might be the best thing for them financially. But again, like I said, some people just are never going to do that. And that's totally fine. And they want to maintain as best they can um, without surgery. And so we've got, you know, several tools that we can use in our toolbox to do that. And all those, those other things that I was talking about, all therapy is a great one that is um, really great for people that are just they're just never going to have a facelift. They're just never going to have a blepharoplasty or a neck lift. Um, and that's fine. So question number three, I have super heavy periods and they're miserable every month and I don't know how to stop them. So I certainly am not an OBGYN, nor am I an expert in that category, but I will say I do feel like I hear this a lot and it's surprising to me. I don't know if women aren't bringing it up to their their GYNs or their PCPs or whoever you're seeing, or if you just think this is the way it has to be. I'm, I mean, genuinely have a, a you know friend who didn't realize like, oh, hey, this isn't normal and it actually doesn't have to be this way until, you know, we were talking one day and I was like, you know, you know, you can, you don't have to have this, right? So one thing that I'm aware of is uterine ablation is, a, is an option for some people. Um, and then even you, with certain birth controls, like your hormonal IUDs can totally stop a lot of patients from having periods or put, make their periods so light, they're significantly more manageable. So that can be an option. And then even just regular, your hormonal birth controls, like uh, the ring, NuvaRing, or even just OCPs, like your regular pills, you know, there's a, a placebo week or built in there for pills, for example, or with the ring, for example, it says take it out for a week and then put another one in. Talk to your provider, but you don't actually have to do that because there's really not a medical reason that you need to be having a, a period at that point, if you're using something to control the, the lining of your uterus like that. So definitely talk to your provider, see what your options are, but you don't have to live that way, I would say. Oh, and, and the end of her question was basically without having a hysterectomy, right? Because that is major abdominal surgery and not everybody's trying to have major abdominal surgery. So there are several options and you just never know, you know, if you don't bring it up. And I think that's kind of a different conversation too, is, is just how can we encourage people to bring things up? You know, is it that it's an embarrassment issue? Maybe potentially haven't been taken seriously before. And I think, um, hopefully this might help some people to know that there are definitely, definitely other options and you don't have to have a hysterectomy to stop heavy periods. Question number four, 
ah, so near and dear to my heart. Well, thank, no, actually far, but dear to my heart is night shift ruining my metabolism and my whole body and my skin. Okay. I, from a straight up endocrinology standpoint, wish I could explain the circadian rhythm and the hormone shifts that come with that. Um, I cannot, hopefully one day I'll have an endocrinologist on that can speak more intelligently to that. But I mean, the short answer is kind of yes. So night shift there, there's an actual diagnosis of shift, wake disorder, shift, wake, sleep, wake disorder, um, for people who work night shifts. And so we also know there's so many things that happen hormonally during certain stages of sleep. And this is something we see with sleep apnea as well. So it is certainly, certainly possible that when you're staying up all night, you know, unnaturally, that's not what your, our bodies are naturally designed to do. And then you're trying to sleep during the day. It's typically, I mean, never say never, but it's really never the same kind of sleep or quality of sleep. And so if you're not getting into all of the different stages of sleep, you're potentially either making too much of or not making enough of these certain hormones like ghrelin and cortisol and different things that we don't even realize we're making that play a role in not just metabolism, but, you know, I used to think about my sleep apnea patients. There's a hormone that literally tells you when you are that satiety level, like when you're full and, um, it, with sleep apnea or disrupted sleep, you are not making as much of that hormone. You're not making an adequate amount. And so you don't even real, your body doesn't even realize when you're full. And so I remember having these conversations and feeling like this is so unfair. I'm telling you to lose weight because I know that that's a huge part of your sleep apnea, but also it's like I'm telling you to run uphill while losing weight or this double-edged sword because hormonally, you know, you're at a disadvantage just from the start. So it's just, it's just a hard part of life. I worked night shift for nine months. I worked night shift and for nine months, I was miserable. I was so miserable because what happens when you're working night shift. And so, you know, if you have any friends or family that work night shift, just think about this. So you are kind of constantly seven days a week thinking about and thinking ahead of, okay, when am I supposed to be asleep next? And not just because you have a shift that next morning or you just had a shift that day before. It's because you're on a completely different schedule than the rest of the world, the world that you're functioning with. And let's say, you know, you've got a night shift the next day. Well, you don't want to sleep a normal night and wake up at a normal time because then you know, you'll try to take a nap in the afternoon that almost never works. And then you are supposed to be awake from, you know, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. And then the next day, it depends on, you know, do you have another shift in a row coming up? If you don't have multiple shifts in a row, it's like the more spread out your shifts are, the worse it is. Because you're, y'all, you're constantly trying to figure out when am I supposed to be asleep? Supplements and vitamins are just a part of so many of our daily lives now. So how do we know what to choose in a brand? My family personally uses Thorn. Thorn has partnerships with hospitals and universities across the country, including the Mayo Clinic and Charleston's own Medical University of South Carolina. You can order any Thorn product through me when you create your account at thorn.com 
slash use slash dabbleco and you'll receive 15% off and free shipping on all your future orders. When you create your account, you will just be prompted to confirm Dabbleco as your referral and the discounts applied in the cart after you create your account. Again, that's thorn.com slash you, like the letter U, slash Dabbleco. And you can also find the direct link in the show notes. Do I need to stay up really late? So sometimes the night before a night shift, or, or really, no, it would be two nights before a night shift, I'd start trying to stay up later and later so that I could try to sleep later and later and then be more functional at my shift that was two days later. And then you'd have two, three shifts in a row where you might get decent sleep during the day. And then you're kind of trying to acclimatize back to normal life so that you can like function with friends. And it's, it's just, it's the weirdest It is the weirdest experience to me. And some people do just fine with night shift. um, And I don't know how they do it. I don't know if they just get so used to it. But for most people, it's really difficult um, physically, emotionally. I mean, like I said, there's a whole diagnosis category of um, shift works, sleep-wake disorder, I think is what it's called. Um, It's like it is an actual ICD-10 code that you can diagnose someone with. So it's pretty crazy to think about, uh, sleep and, and sleep, (laughs) it just, it's so underestimated of how important it is. I mean, even so now, you know, I've been in the rhythm since I've had my first child almost seven years ago of waking up at, you know, pretty early time in the mornings, whether it's six or seven o'clock. And so I don't even think at this point, I mean, yeah, when you stay up really late now, like say, you know, late dinner, you're out or whatever, and you go to sleep really late, I can no longer sleep that eight or nine hours that I would love to sleep until, you know, 10 or 11 o'clock the next morning. That's just not happening. My body is legit trained to wake up at a certain time. So sleep is just so, so, so important. Um, so yeah, I hope that it's not ruining your whole life to work night shift, but if you have an option not to and you're having issues, it may be a change that you need to make. So question number five, what skincare is safe in pregnancy? So this is a really nuanced, funky question to answer. On the one hand, I don't think anyone is really going to say XYZ product or ingredient is safe because that would mean that specific product would have had to have been studied specifically in pregnant women. And that is extremely rare, almost never happens. Pregnant women are left out of most clinical trials. And the verbiage that we use is GRAS or generally recognized as safe because, you know, like I said, it, they typically haven't been specifically studied. And so a lot of the kind of data that we have on ingredient profiles in skincare during pregnancy is really all retrospective, right? Looking back over decades of women being pregnant and using certain ingredients before we knew that they were or were not safe. You know, there used to be or I mean, it's still now, but there are medications that will come out and, you know, it, it may take some time before the science catches up and we realize that it's not safe. But what I personally use to kind of counsel my patients, um, and, and all of my patients are different, right? Like I, I have different conversations with, with everybody. It's, I don't put out a sheet that's like, here's what's safe and here's what's not. I talk to everybody about, um, you know, 
their different things and different needs. So I use the ACOG guidelines, which are the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines, and they have really pretty detailed recommendations for what is GRAS or generally recognized as safe. I think what would surprise most uh, people who are pregnant is that there, there's actually a lot more that you can use safely than you cannot use safely. So the, the sentiment, I feel like when you get pregnant for the first time, it's just like, oh, everything's dangerous. You can't have this. You can't have that. But kind of like the alcohol thing, a lot of these things have just been passed down for so many decades that without looking back at the why, okay, well, why, why are they saying that soft cheese is not safe during pregnancy? Well, because you know, a long time ago, soft cheese was not made from, you know, milk that was not pasteurized. And so you had a higher risk of those foodborne illnesses. Well, now if you're buying cheese that's made in America, um, whether it's soft or not, most of the time it's going to be pasteurized. So skincare, kind of similar sentiment there. There's a lot that you can use that is generally recognized as safe. Um, and you know one specifically that I'll that I'll mention that we know is not safe and this is a lot of it's based on how well the skin absorbs the product too right so hydroquinone which is a skin bleaching agent used for um, typically hyperpigmentation or melasma things like that that is very well absorbed by the skin and can cause harm and we know that so hydroquinone is a big no-no um, retinoids or topical vitamin A's it's, it's a little bit different that's kind of in a more foggy category right now because traditionally it was really said that they're not safe in pregnancy. And that was extrapolated from isotretinoin, which is oral vitamin A. So you're taking, you know, like 50,000 units of vitamin A at a time. That's Accutane. Um, and so, and there, there is a point where, where retinols, there is uh, fetal retinoid syndrome, but that's like, you'd have to be like coating your entire body in in retinoids and wrapping it in plastic wrap to get it to absorb. But all that to say have a conversation with whoever's helping you with skincare. Um, ask your OB. I find nine times out of 10 when I have a patient that we're not sure or they're not sure, we're just, you know, want to be, you know, super cautious. And I'll say, ask your OB. Let me know what they say. Nine times out of 10, they're like, yeah, it's fine. Because I look at, you know, the ACOG guidelines and hopefully your skincare provider is doing that as well. Um, for, for both reasons, not because I you know, feel like everything's risky, but really because pregnant women kind of get the short end of the stick and are just told no about everything all the time. And there really is plenty that you can use. So ACOG guidelines are easy to look up. You can look up skincare and ACOG guidelines and really see right there kind of what is and is not considered um, generally recognized as safe. Question number six, is PRP or platelet-rich plasma effective in hair growth? Um, probably... Yes and no. This is a hard question. So, but I think it's important because it's everywhere right now. So, platelets are part of your blood and they promote cell growth and help cells regenerate. So, what, what happens if you're going to get a PRP treatment, which is platelet rich plasma, is you'll go into an office, they'll draw some blood and they'll spin down the part that they want to use that has the platelets inside the plasma. And the theory is that potentially these platelets, if they're injected really deep into the skin, um, typically of the scalp, 
to reach the bottom of the hair follicle that they might stimulate a specialized population of cells called dermapapilla cells, which is what plays that role in hair growth. So, it, But reading about it, it really has been more studied in a really specific type of hair loss called androgenic alopecia. And so if you, you know, are having hair loss and you're thinking about doing PRP treatments, I would say, you know, definitely go to someone who is really well-versed in the use of PRP, can help you figure out the type of hair loss that you're having, if it's that specific alopecia or what else is going on, just to make sure because the treatments are really expensive. I mean, they are. They can be anywhere from, you know, a few hundred to, you know, some places charge over $1,000 per visit. Um, And, I, I mean, I would hate for somebody to be, getting these treatments without knowing that it's actually going to be able to help them. So I would say the most important thing is just to make sure that you see somebody who is, is doing it and seeing results and, and can help you see if that's going to be an option for you. So number seven, my favorite book of all time, um, that question, like I loved that question, but also that is a very deep and broad question. So I would say, God, I mean, that, honestly, that was so hard to answer. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, was really transformative for me. So Tim Keller is a pastor out of New York um, at a Presbyterian church called Redeemer. And he answers questions really just in a way that I feel like people can can just connect with. You know, the Bible and Christianity can be really hard to digest and can be confusing and can be, you know, really convicting and make you feel, you know, am I thinking the right thing? Am I thinking the wrong thing? Am I doing the right thing? And all these existential questions. And so basically, Tim Keller has this book that goes through 10 questions that people ask um, about God. And I loved that book. Um, I need to read it again. It's been probably 10 years since I've read it. But it really was just fully transformative for me and my relationship with Christ and just how I kind of viewed, you know, these, these questions that I, that I myself had. So if you're looking for a good book, um, on that front, I think the reason for God is so good. And then I honestly can't remember the last time I've read like a non, just like a book for fun. Somebody asked me that the other day, what am, what am I reading for fun? And I was like, ha, I, I'm not, um, probably because I can't stay awake that long. I have been doing my 20 minute timer at night and I just bought a Kindle. So we'll see. I was hashtag influenced um, by my friend who has a Kindle. So maybe that'll make me read more. Maybe it won't. I don't know. But reason for God, it was really good. I mean, honestly, I think the last book that I read just for fun was Gone Girl. And that was like, what, seven, six, seven years ago? Now, granted, it was a very good book, but I'm sure there are way better books. That's just, that's all I can remember. So sorry. Uh, Question number eight, do chronically inflamed tonsils increase your risk of head and neck cancer? So super interesting. And I, this is, you know, hopefully this answer makes sense the way I'm going to kind of phrase it. So chronic inflammation just by itself is a cancer risk, right? So can we say if your tonsils are chronically inflamed, is that a risk? I mean, probably, but also inflammation, like what do you mean? Or is it just that they're bigger or is it that they're red? And I think it's then, okay, what is causing that? what you think is inflammation? Is it smoking? Is it drinking? You know, what 
is making us think that your tonsils are inflamed. Now, the, I think a lot of head and neck surgeons would probably say like chronically enlarged tonsils themselves by themselves are not a risk of head and neck cancer, but inflammation is different from just enlargement. So when, when people say inflamed, I think a lot of times they mean enlarged. So just because you have big giant tonsils uh, does not mean you have a higher risk for head and neck cancer. Now there are definitely things with your tonsils to look for in terms of, of risk. So, and like I said before, smoking, drinking, those are huge risks in head and neck cancer because they do cause inflammation and that change at the cellular level, kind of like we were talking about with drinking above. And that's what allows cancer cells to grow. Um, so tonsil stones we'd see all the time. And those are, those are not, um, a particular risk for cancer. They're just these very benign, basically bacteria. This is so gross. So basically what happens with the tonsil stone is a little piece of food will get stuck in a crevasse of your tonsil, if you will, crevice, crevasse. And then bacteria will kind of form a coating around it and keep forming and forming. And it makes like a little ball or a rock and you have to pull them out and they stank. But they are not a risk for cancer. Now, asymmetric tonsils are concerning. So let's say you look and one of your tonsils is gigantic and the other one is not. That you need to have evaluated. And then there are little lesions you can get on your tonsils, like little papillomas that almost look like little skin tags or warts. Um, so, you know, those need to be evaluated. Any Anything, it's never a bad idea to get something evaluated and looked at. That's always appropriate. And I think any you know, head and neck cancer surgeon would be happy to look at you anytime to do a, an oral cancer, you know, screening and just make sure everything in there is looking okay. Um, but the, the inflamed question is a little bit trickier to answer because is it really inflammation we're talking about or is it just that it, that your tonsils are big? Some people just have giant tonsils and they're blessed with that and they probably snore, but that doesn't mean that their risk of cancer is higher. Question number nine, team Johnny or team Amber? Uh, when I say I have been immersed in watching this trial, that is an understatement. Um, I cannot stop watching. It is two incredibly toxic people. I am not going to say that he is like some hero here to save the day. However, it's super clear. I mean, there's multiple like tapes and recordings, which she made, which I also I'm very confused by, um, where she's saying, you know, that she hit was like hitting him, punching him. So, I mean, my, my hope, I don't think that it sounds like he was in any way violent towards her, but it sounds like she was very violent towards him. It sounds like they were just super toxic in their words and behaviors and would have these like super bizarre, like fights where they, anyway, it's a mess. It's just a mess. None of it's healthy. Um, I'm, t I'm team Johnny, but I'm not like, uh, he's a saint and can't believe this is happening. Cause obviously he's got some mage issues, including, you know, addiction in there. And that's really hard to navigate. And I, I'm sure that she didn't have an easy time with that, but also you can't, can't be hitting people, you know, you just really can't. So if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. 
BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, It solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. Okay, number 10. I decided to save number 10, and I'm going to see if you guys like this and if you want to hear more about it. I, um, I would am going to try to reach out to this guy on TikTok who is super closely following this case and knows every the ins and outs of every detail. So um, number 10, Redon Devot. So I asked you guys, do you want to hear about Radon Devot or not? And 90 something percent said yes. So Radon Devot is a, or was a nurse RN at Vanderbilt University Hospital here in Nashville. And she was working in the ICU and she basically committed a fatal medication error. And when you commit a medication error, it, it happens, it happens to, you know, physicians, NPs, PAs, RNs, LPNs, it happens. Um, There are certain ways that you're supposed to, you know, checks and balances of prescribing, administering meds, all of these checks and balances that we have, but it happens from the top down. And when you commit the medication error, you're supposed to self-report, which she did. Um, Basically, the, the short version is there are two medications. They both start with a V. One's a sedative, one's a paralytic meaning they can patient can no longer move the muscles of their diaphragm, which allows them to breathe. So it's something that's used when you put a breathing tube down people to keep them from like pulling it out. And she pulled out the paralytic and she gave it to the patient and the patient ultimately died. So did she cre- did she cause or, or you know create a fatal situation? Yes. Um, do I think that she should have lost her job and her license? Um, yeah, yeah, I, I do. I think that the evidence in the case is really, you know, it's sad and it's, it's horrible. Did she do it on purpose? No, if she did it on purpose, she wouldn't have self-reported. I would think, I mean, unless she's just like, why would, I don't know. So she self-reported. No one thinks it was intentional. What's tricky about this case is that she then several years later, was, so she was reported to the board of nursing, um, had some consequences, you know, was fired, lost her license, all of that. But then a couple of years later, for some reason, and this is where I need my, my TikTok man, is she was kind of like re-reported is my understanding and criminal charges were actually brought against her. And she was charged with and convicted of homicide, negligent homicide. And I think that Every single person that is a healthcare provider, whether you are a pharmacist, a physical therapist, a physician, an APP, an RN, a respiratory therapist, you should all be in grave disagreement with that uh, verdict. And that is my personal opinion. I know that I share that opinion with most medical professionals that I talk to. Now, did she sidestep many of the checks and balances? 
Yes, she did. She did. Do a lot of us sidestep, not, not a lot of us, no, I'm not even going to say a lot of us, do all of us sidestep checks and balances all day, every single day in medicine when you're practicing medicine? Yes. The answer is yes, absolutely. When you're prescribing something in an electronic medical record, it might give you four warnings about med interaction or this dosing or whatever. We all get alarm fatigue, right? And, and I think that most medical providers listening will agree with that. But we get alarm fatigue and you're like, yeah, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. And you just click the button and you click through. And so what happened in her case, the patient had the sedative ordered verbally by the physician, meaning he said, yeah, give this patient X amount of Versed before you take them for this scan, basically. Um, so taking, so that's a whole other story, taking the patient out of the ICU unmonitored down for the scan. This is not what that episode's about, but verbal order. And so in order to pull that medication out, since it wasn't in the patient's chart yet, she had to override something. That is a totally normal thing that happens all day, every single day in medicine, and we could not function if you can't override medications and get them when you need to. There are a million different reasons you you might override the medication. You know, the barcode's not working, or the dose, you know, was changed, like I said, verbally or given verbally, which you're allowed to take verbal orders as as an RN, and, and there are certain protocols and different times when you don't even have to have an order because there's a protocol in place and the order is in that protocol. So there's a million different things that I think a lot of people don't understand that they're like, oh, she overrode the thing and she bypassed the safety measures. It's like, we all, we all do that all day, every day. And, and you will not convince me that you are a healthcare provider who has never sidestepped a, a red flag or a safety measure or whatever that was put in place because there are so many for patient safety, I get it, but also because uh, you know, thing you know, it's kind of like why we all take our shoes off to get on the airplane. Um, something happens, somebody will get sued, and now it's like, okay, well, now we're going to put this other safeguard in place. Um, so I'm really, you know, gosh, I mean, for the family, my understanding as well is that the family of this patient that died actually did not want charges brought against Redonda, criminal charges. You know, they said, yeah, take her license, lose her job, but she's not a criminal. Um, and the DA in Nashville did it anyway, Glenn Funk. And I'm putting this out now. Hopefully I'll be able to get an episode out. Her sentencing is actually on May 13th. Um, I will be there, as will literally probably thousands of nurses from across the country in support of, of her and really of our entire profession. Um, because this is going to change care, patient care, not for the better, not for the better at all. Um, when you, just to give you an example, when you're in a crazy car accident and they bring you in by ambulance and we don't have your ID, we don't know who you are, how old you are, how much you weigh, nothing. And you're coding and they're trying to save your life. You're pulling things out and overriding and bypassing, you know, safety checks all day long. And if you can't do that, if you've no longer have the power to to pull things out when you need them and to override things when you need them. Um, it's it's detrimental to patient care, um, and I think you know I've, I'm glad to see I've seen a lot of physicians really in support of her. I know that um, there are plenty of people, physicians, nurses, all of it. They're like, oh, this is this is a never event. It's really not. It's really not a never event. Med med errors happen. There's almost 
there are a few things, but there's almost nothing in, in medicine that's a never event. Um, you know, it, it's just horrible mistakes happen. And why do horrible mistakes happen? Because the people practicing medicine are human. So let me know if you want to me to try to pursue uh, a person who has really heavily been, you know, researching and reporting on this case. I think it's super fascinating. And I think it brings up really interesting conversation about medicine and what, you know, even accidents in general outside of medicine. You know, I kind of was thinking about that, gosh, the truck driver that was sentenced to like a hundred years in prison or some ridiculous thing because his brakes failed and he failed to use the the, the pull-off ramp. Um, and so it was kind of the same situation. He was charged with um, negligent homicide because you know, he killed, like, I don't know, eight people or something ridiculously, like, horrible, horrible tragedy. Um, but at the end of the day, it was an accident. And we don't know what happened, why he didn't use the pull-off ramp. You know, did he panic, freak out, you know, and not even realize it was there? Um, and And should humans be held criminally accountable, criminally, for, I'm not talking about civilly, you know, sue the hospital all day, sue her if you want, sue him, whatever, like, I get it, civil is totally different, but criminal, I just don't know, I don't know if humans um, should be held criminally responsible for accidents, I think it's a conversation that we probably need to have. Anyway, I usually try to end on something light and fun, but that was not it. So as always, thank you guys for listening and please rate and subscribe to the show. If you like the show, tell your friends, share it. That's how I keep getting good guests and I'll see you next week. 